You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, Hamish. How you doing, mate? I'm doing well. I, um, I finally, I, I don't know if we've, I, I mentioned this on the in any previous episodes, but I've finally started to make some moves on my new studio. So uh, oh, that's great. exciting. Have uh, the frame and the backdrop is kind of built, um, but I still need to buy a bunch of things to fill it out in terms of props and, and soundproofing and that sort of thing. But finally, starting to make some moves on that after a long time. Flexing so, uh, your design muscles. Yeah, exactly. I've got to. Uh, it's tough making decisions about what will look good and and uh, and yeah, w- which way you want to soundproof the room and that sort of thing. There's so many different options. It's hard to make decisions like that when mm. uh, things are you know relatively expensive and uh, you don't want to make the wrong decision. But <laughs> it is exciting. I, I do enjoy the process of uh, working on a bit of a project that's kind of different to what I've been doing over the past few years. Yeah. I'm sure you can just play around with it a little bit as well. Like if, you know, if you don't quite like how it's looking after you feel like you finish it, you can change a couple of things up. But especially if you're like building it specifically to be a set, it's like, it's not like you're just, you know, carving up your living room kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I'll probably start, I'll probably start recording in it with pretty much no props in it and then just kind of build upon it over time. I think that's kind of mm. the way I want to go about it. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's very exciting. What's news I want you to with- buy, yeah? I want you to buy a big Bitcoin coin and I want, you, I want the Bitcoin coin to be in the back of all your videos. Right, okay. Have, yeah. have like a cupboard or like a little display stand in the background and just a big Bitcoin sign I'll, right there. Yeah, I'll just get a bunch of crypto stuff and, and put it in the background. That'll work <laughs> perfectly for my audience. <laughs> yeah, and what I want you to do is I want- there to be a screen in the background with candlesticks constantly changing. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Set design done. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, just, yeah, just to let everybody know that you're a big, big Bitcoin trader. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, all right. What are we talking about today? Uh, more Facebook, FTC, lawsuit mm. stuff, antitrust stuff. Uh, Ray Dalio, he's uh, he posted something on YouTube recently, which we've both made a video about, which has, it was quite uh, quite interesting what he was talking about. Mm. And uh, Robinhood, interestingly, uh, getting set for an IPO. We've also got a little bit of news about Trump taking <laughs> trying to take <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, and Google to court, and uh, and Nissan apparently building a gigafactory. So mm. lots to talk about today. So I guess uh, we'll get into the sponsor bit, and then we'll get stuck into it. Yeah. So today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite once again, and uh, basically ShareSite is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. Uh, it will allow you to basically bring in all of your trades either manually if you want to or automatically with one of the associated brokers and it will basically give you a breakdown of all of the performance of your the performance of your stock portfolio in a number of different ways so in terms of capital gains dividends if you have dividend reinvestment plans it will do all of those calculations for you currency gains if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies which is super important if you are investing in overseas markets or you just hold foreign currency. So, if you're Australian buying US shares, the changes in currency can have a dramatic impact on your return. And uh, if you're not using something like ShareSite, it's pretty difficult to accurately track that over time and see the impact of that. Um, It's just a pain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look over, I've spoken about this a couple of times, but if you look over the past 12 months between the US and Australian dollar, it's moved a lot. It's moved, you Mm. know, more than 10, 12% at some points, uh, just over 12 months. So, um, if you're not tracking that, you may very well think you're doing a lot better than you are or 
or uh, that you're doing worse than you actually are in real terms. But beyond performance tracking, ShareSite also allows you to helps you at tax time. So um, you, they generate up to 10 different reports that you can use at tax time for things such as your capital gains, dividend income, and more. Uh, and at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. So use that link, sign up to a free plan, track t- up to 10 stocks and use it for as long as you want. Or you can also use that link to sign up to a paid plan for more features and you can get four months off a yearly subscription if you use our link. So go check it out. Mm. And again, thank you to everyone who has used that link and uh, in a small way supported uh, this podcast, which we do every week. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate it. All right. Let's talk about uh, Robinhood. They Mm. are... you know, we've been talking about, you know, Robinhood IPO, when's it going to happen for, for ages? Mm. They have now taken a big step in getting closer to that IPO. Still right. no date on the IPO, um, but it seems like it's uh, it's definitely the, the, wheels are, the wheels are turning now. So, it says here, Robinhood Markets has filed a registration statement with the Securities and Exchange Commission relating to the proposed initial public offering of its Class A common stock. As per the statement, proposed listing of Robinhood shares will be on the Nasdaq stock market under the ticker symbol HOOD. Uh, Hmm. However, no date has been set yet for the IPO. Right. Um, So, they did this thing. They filed this S1 filing, which kind of gives a, I don't know exactly what it goes into, but it gives you a a massive, you know, background on the business and, and what's going on. And interestingly, Warren Buffett got his wish. So, if you remember um, back in May at the Berkshire Annual Shareholder Meeting, he was talking about uh, how Robinhood are going to file this S1 filing. They're going to have to explain their business and, you know, I wonder how they're going to do that. In fact, he said, I'm concerned about how they handle the source of income when they say they don't charge the customer anything. It'll just be interesting to watch how they describe it. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, they've now filed this S1 um, and Robinhood's filing revealed that it earns most of its revenue from transactions primarily in the form of... Of payment for order flow, which is getting, uh, which is sorry, which is getting paid to route its sorry, I'll say that again, which is getting paid to route its users' trade orders to market makers for execution. So, payment for order flow from options and equity transactions and transaction rebates from crypto trading accounted for 75% of Robinhood's total revenue in 2020 and 81% in the first quarter of this year. Mm. So, the way that they are making money is by selling their orders to a market maker. (laughs) <laughs> right. Okay. I hope you can explain that a little bit more because I have no idea what payment for order flow is and, and yeah. how to understand that. And maybe even after an explanation from you, I still won't. Look, I find this stuff really confusing. All, in all honesty, uh, I can't stand up here like I'm some sort of expert. I, I'm like barely, I don't, I don't even think I fully understand exactly what they do. But um, the way I understand it, so they sell what orders are coming into Robinhood, mm-hmm. buys and sells from their users. They sell that to a market maker. So, what I believe what that means is that the market maker can obviously see some orders coming in and then the market maker can make a move. They can get on the other side of that trade um, so that they can end up making money off of the Robinhood orders that are coming in. Right, okay. Um, which- I, again, if you ask me to, so go in detail and actually explain to me how that works. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I can't say I understand how it works. Um, but what I understand is that um, it it's a way of essentially the market makers are able to see what's coming and make money because they know what's about to hit them. Um, and it also makes the orders slightly more expensive for the Robinhood users. So, that's why- Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett were saying, um, you know, sure, it might be brokerage free, Mm. but you're still actually kind of paying a higher price in just a 
different way. It's because um, you're actually getting screwed on the other end a little bit <laughs> by these market makers that that get to get to see what's going to happen before it happens. I suppose. Mm. Um, That's does really- that does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting, and it's I'll have to. Um, I, I had a brief look through this S one filing just because I was curious as to right. to see what they um, provided. Um, you know, in terms of explaining their business, and um, immediately I, I identified this as a business as one that I probably will never invest in just because it's so complicated these these finance businesses and and mm. how they generate revenue um it's not as simple as just charging a brokerage fee and that's it like once when people are putting in orders in robin hood there's so much going on behind the scenes in order to make those orders go through and at what prices those orders are going through and who's taking a little little bit of money in the middle as a middleman um, so yeah, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be able to understand this business really easily, but it's not one for, not one for me. And the fact that it's an IPO, I, I don't invest in IPOs either, but, um, fair enough, but, uh, yeah, complicated <laughs> business in, in my opinion, at least from my perspective. Yeah. And I guess the main reason we don't invest in IPOs is because we have a lack of financial data. However, yeah. um, Robinhood did disclose a little bit of uh, previous financial data so we can have a look at exactly where their money is coming in from. And what's really interesting, I'll, I'll read this to you, uh, Robinhood S1 shows it garnered $198 million or 38% of its total first quarter revenues from options transactions hmm. compared to so 198 million from option transactions compared to 133 million from equities and 88 million from crypto options transactions also generated 440 million or 46% of its revenue last year Wow. 46% of their revenue last year from the options transactions, dwarfing the $251 million earned from equities and $27 million from crypto. Mm. See, now, like, How, when, when you that's say- That's interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. But the fact that I- So, like, I have such a misunderstanding of, of how Robinhood makes money. I mean, is that because- Is that primarily because I'll, the most of the transactions- Or, in this case, say, like, 46% of the transactions on Robinhood are being done in options? Or is it that they're able to make a oh, higher- yeah margin on those options transactions um these are kind of things that would be super important if you were you know putting down a valuation on the business and um i just uh when you read when you explain these things to me i'm like wow i have so many questions that i just don't know the answer to but that is really interesting and i wouldn't be surprised um if uh, a significant portion of uh trades on robin hood are being done in the form of options because it's incredibly popular right now particularly if you Mm. just look at youtube content around robin hood for example um most people are talking about how to trade options and, and that sort of thing. So, um, really interesting to know. Four hundred forty million dollars. Wow, they are uh, they're making a lot of money. And this flows on from what we were talking about last week as well. You know how we we're talking about you know whether it's ethical for Robinhood just to be you know opening up margin or opening up options trading to just anybody who signs up, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, while we don't know what what you say is correct, it, it may be the options side of their business selling order flow or whatever it is, is is more, is a higher margin business for them. But one thing that we do know just by looking at these numbers is that the options part of their business is the most valuable thing to Robinhood right now. Right. Yeah. So, we'll click because if they're like, you just look at where their revenue is coming from. And if they have 46% of their revenue from options trading, then it's like, okay, options transactions are extremely important to our revenue. So, if, in that vein, the what, what are the top dogs at, uh, at Robinhood going to say? They're going to say, okay, we need to continue to push our options business. Yeah. Look at how much money this is making for us. Forget about, you know, they're saying it's dwarfing the equity portion. It's dwarfing the crypto revenue. So, it's like, okay, forget about that stuff. Let's keep pushing options. We are making so much money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and that's where you get the problem with these kinds of businesses. And it's not just Robinhood. It's really any kind of broker in that they make make more money if you trade more often. Um, it, they don't like if you're a brokerage firm and you're sell, you're um, charging brokerage or even if you're not charging brokerage and you're selling order flow like Robinhood is doing, um, you really don't care what money the person makes or doesn't make on their portfolio. You care no. how many trades they make and, uh, you know, maybe what is the volume of those trades. So, um, 
Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting business where, um, you know, their philosophy is obviously to provide access to as many people as possible. And I think that philosophy is is really a, a good one. And I like to see innovations in the finance space that give people access. But at the same time, yeah, options trading is probably something most people just shouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole mm. ever in their entire life. So, <laughs> the fact yeah. that most people are jumping onto investing for the first time um, or trading, I should probably say, and say, seeing these options, um, the, the the ability to trade options and doing that immediately from the get go is is uh, incredibly dangerous um, for for a lot of people. So, yeah. One thing I actually wanted to bring up just very quickly um, on that business model, this is actually, and I don't mean this to sound like any sort of advertisement or anything like that, but what you're saying about you know brokers make more money with the more trades that people make. Um, which is totally correct. So, they don't care how you do. They don't care if you make money or lose money. They just care about how many trades you're making. They want to turn every long-term investor into a day trader, for Christ's sake. Um, That's why I really like the business model um, that Stake uses, where every single trade on their platform is brokerage-free, and the way that they make money is when you transfer your Australian dollars to US dollars, they'll take a little percentage there mm. on the foreign exchange transaction, and then when you bring your US dollars eventually back into Australian dollars, then they'll also take a percentage. So because they're taking a percentage on the way in and on the way out, as opposed to just charging you for a brokerage fee, they're going. that business model will make more money if you turn your Australian dollars into US dollars, do really, really well with your investing, snowball your portfolio into some huge number, and then eventually take that huge number back into Australian dollars. That's how they're going mm. to make more money. So, it's like it's in their best interest for you to actually do really well <laughs> with your investing. But anyway, like I said, I'm not trying to use this as an advertisement And this episode is sponsored by- no, Yeah, by, sponsored by Stake. Um, but as soon as you said that, that actually just triggered in my mind the, the interesting difference between some of these brokers' business models. And honestly, that's why, again, I don't want don't, this to sound like an ad, that's why I like Stake more as a business because they're not just simply, you know, trying to, you know, do more trades, do more trades. We're making more money when you're doing more trades, you know? But anyway. Yeah, no, nah, that, that makes perfect sense. I, I didn't want, what I was saying before, I didn't want it to sound like I was just hating on Robinhood specifically. I was more kind of generally talking about just um, the industry in general. Oh, yeah, um, it's I, how I the think, industry works. Yeah, it's- uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a strange industry where you you make money from people making decisions that are probably not in their best interest. So <laughs> yeah, in a lot of cases. Uh, hey, speaking of making decisions not in your best interest, um, one final point that I wanted to just bring up here, hmm. uh, which was from this article, uh, from this S one, it says. Uh, Robinhood users uh, apparently haven't been buying the safest assets either. Really? (laughs) Yeah, exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, So, Dogecoin, a meme-inspired cryptocurrency created as a joke, accounted for, wait for it, 34% of the platform's revenue from crypto trading in the first quarter. Oh, my God. Aye, aye, aye. So, of all of the cryptocurrency revenue that they generated. 34% came from people trading Dogecoin, <laughs> which is a joke. Yeah. I saw- a, I, <laughs> I mean, literally, literally, Dogecoin is a joke. <laughs> yeah. I, I, saw a, uh, I saw a meme uh, the other day that was uh, describing the three best performing assets of 2021. And it was Dogecoin, basically a joke cryptocurrency, a dying uh, cinema business and a, <laughs> yeah. uh, a dying video game retailer. <laughs> like that's Isn't the, that hilarious? that's what the market is suggesting are the best performing assets uh, this year so yep. far. So that tells you all you need to know about how um, how rational the market is right now. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That is ridiculous. Anyway, that's uh, that's what we've got to talk about for uh, for mm. Robin Hood. Very interesting. We'll see what happens. We'll follow up on their IPO. Um, holy moly! I just do you reckon the first day of trading? Do you reckon IPO? Uh, sorry, do you reckon Robin Hood just skyrockets, or do you reckon it falls, or do you reckon? I guess this is very much dependent on what price they decide to IPO each share at. But um, if you had to just have a have a stab in the dark, which way is the IPO headed on day one? Um, Up, down, or sideways? 
God, I have no idea. I don't even want to make a prediction on that. Because um, I'm thinking like, I'm thinking it could go up because it seems like every IPO is just skyrocketing on the first day these days. But then again, there's been so much controversy about Robinhood. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if it went down. What There was what, there was an IPO recently that just collapsed immediately. Was it Coinbase that- uh, Yeah, that I think so. Coinbase really tanked bad? straight away. Yeah, yeah, so that has not gone anywhere near. It's still 26% down from where it opened. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it would follow something similar to that would be my guess. But it, mm. it entirely depends, I think, on like just general sentiment in the market at that point in time. Absolutely. There's yeah. always a period where- Every IPO that's coming out gains momentum because all the, all the previous ones have been doing really well. And then there's kind of a tipping point and it's like, okay, the last IPO was terrible. So, all the, all the pre-investors, all the private investors are just going to sell immediately and just try and get out before the rug is pulled out from underneath them. So, I don't know. I have, I have no idea what that stock will do on that day. Yeah, who knows? But, um, yeah. yeah. And that's why we don't invest in IPOs because <laughs> we have no clue what's going to happen. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about anyway. this uh, this Facebook story that I have yeah, here. And I think this was from last week, but um, it's, uh, it, it's still relevant and we didn't speak about it, I don't think. But uh, Facebook scored a point against the US government. It's uh, <laughs> Facebook's on the board <laughs> this week. Nice. Um, so, to, this is kind of in relation to their antitrust lawsuit, which I'll, I'll give a bit of a recap because it was a while ago that Please we spoke do. about this. So, um, this started all in December of 2020, where basically the Federal Trade Commission uh, and 48 US states all banned together to sue Facebook <laughs> under antitrust laws, which was, um, it was basically marked at the time as the biggest antitrust lawsuit since Microsoft faced their lawsuit in the early 2000s. And um, in that case, Microsoft actually lost. It was found that they did have um, a monopoly in, in some aspects of their business, in their computing business. Um, so, this was a massive lawsuit that was basically alleging that Facebook was abusing uh, or is abusing their market power in social networking to crush smaller competitors. So, in other right. words, they're arguing that it was a monopoly and they a key part of the argument was that the acquisition of um, Instagram and WhatsApp, so uh, Instagram was acquired in 2012, I want to say, and WhatsApp in 2014, that those two acquisitions were competition stifling, that they used their market leading position to buy up all of the competition and secure a monopoly, basically. Um, and they, yep. that they did it in a, a malicious way. And why the story was so shocking at the time was, uh, the lawsuit, I should say, was because part of the lawsuit said that they wanted to see Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp all split up, that Facebook would have to sell Instagram and sell WhatsApp um, and dispose of them and no longer um, realize the benefits of, of being able to own all of them at once and, and have them all on their own servers and have cross advertising between Facebook and Instagram and all of that sort of stuff. So, it was a huge news story, but we also said at the time that um, these things usually go on for like two, three years minimum, maybe even longer. So, um, you know, it's a long story and we'll come back to it every now and then. Uh, but eight months later, today or this week, um, we got some big news and that is that the case has been dismissed by a oh. uh, US district judge um, who basically said that the lawsuits were, and quote, legally insufficient. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which is uh, pretty... And I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quite happy throughout this story, by the way, because disclosure, I do invest in Facebook. So, just um, that I'm, I'm in, entirely <laughs> biased. But... Um, that's uh, that's kind of my perspective on it. But essentially- So, they just chucked it out. They chucked it out. Um, Sorry, guys. Not good enough. See you later. Yeah. I mean, they, were, they basically were told that they didn't provide enough evidence to prove that Facebook was a monopoly. Um, and when a case is dismissed, that means that before the trial or the, the, the court has- the, the, Before the trial has even started or any settlement has kind of um, started to get underway, um, the-, the, the, the courts basically say we can't we're not even going to have this case we're not even going to let you make the case because right. there isn't enough evidence um, and the quote from the judge was uh, these allegations which do not even provide an estimated actual figure or range for Facebook's market share at any point in the past 10 years ultimately falls short of plausibly establishing that Facebook holds market power so uh, fair enough <laughs> yeah I mean th that's basically the key issue um, 
in this lawsuit is that the US needs to show that Facebook has market dominance. And um, in order for that, you need to, the US needs to define which market Facebook operates in. And um, basically they can define it in two key ways. The way that I can see it, they could define it to include face uh, whatsapp and instagram and they would want right. to do that right because then they can say well they bought up competition they bought up whatsapp which was in the same industry they bought up instagram however if they argue that those two businesses are in the same market then facebook also would likely be able to argue that things like youtube and tiktok and twitter and iMessage and all of these others things are in the same market and then all of a sudden mm. it doesn't look like facebook is a monopoly so it entirely right. depends on how they define social media uh, or social networking. Um, and if the US was to argue that it excludes face, uh, WhatsApp and Instagram and, um, you know, is a very specific market um, that, you know, that only Facebook caters to, for example, and therefore they have majority of market share, well, then there's really no evidence that Facebook used its power to stifle competition. Because if you're excluding WhatsApp and Instagram from the industry, then them buying it, them doesn't stifle competition. Yeah, so, it's like they're entering a new industry. <laughs> it's exactly. It's overall just a very, very difficult, uh, difficult thing to prove. Um, yeah. And uh, as the judge kind of said, the US was not able to provide a figure for Facebook's market share, which is you know the bare minimum you need to provide if you're arguing you're a monopoly. Monopoly is is does Facebook have ninety percent market share? What's the market and and mm. what are the competitors? Who are they competing against? So, um, yeah, not uh, it didn't go well for the uh, for the FTC at least so far. But the FTC will be able to refile the complaint, so they haven't dismissed the case yet. So um, if they did that, they wouldn't be able to challenge again. But they just dismissed the complaint, which means that the FTC can file another complaint, which they almost certainly will. Um, and uh, if they do that, they'll have to come up with uh, more evidence to support their claim. Right. So, it's kind of like um, the court saying, go go away. Okay, that was your first draft. It wasn't good <laughs> enough. Go away, fix it up, and then come back to us later. Is that, is that kind of a good analogy or <laughs> pretty pretty much I mean basically what we've what, what the the courts have been doing over the past few months is hearing evidence from the US government to say this is the reason why we should have a case and the the key thing that the the key thing they're looking for is plausibility so is it plausible? Do they have enough evidence that it's plausible that Facebook has market power? Not proving that they do yet. That's what the yeah. case would be for, the court. That's what the trial would be for. Um, right. But is it plausible? And they couldn't even prove that. So, they have to try again. Um, oh, and yeah, they probably yeah, yeah. will in a few months. It'll probably take some time. I mean, this thing, as I said, it'll go on for probably years, um, assuming mm. they continue to file suits. But, I mean, the growing size of something like TikTok, for example, since they initially filed this lawsuit is not good for this lawsuit no. because it really does show, I think, I mean, before TikTok came along and you had something like Snapchat that rose up and then Facebook basically just took the features and, <laughs> and did a better job mm. with it. Um, in that environment, it looked, you could have made a much better argument, I think, that Facebook had somewhat of a monopoly or market dominance. Whereas mm. now um, with TikTok rising so quick, so fast, um, even just over the past 12 months, um, I think it, it shows that, uh, that there is competition and that things can change extremely quickly in, uh, in social media. So, we'll, mm. we'll kind of just have to see how it plays out. Facebook hit a trillion dollar valuation this week on the news, which is a uh, wow. big, big, uh, <laughs> big milestone. Jeez. I didn't think they were anywhere near a trillion dollars no, before me neither. I looked at this story. <laughs> <laughs> I, the last time I looked, they're at like six hundred billion or something. Yeah, oh, I haven't looked in a while. Facebook stock. Yeah, I, so uh, one trillion. Yeah. Oh yeah, they've just dipped down nine ninety three billion. Yeah, but that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I don't check my portfolio all that often um, because no. these are all long term investments. So I actually saw this article and then I went and checked my portfolio to see the return on my on Facebook because I hadn't actually seen it. But yeah, it's uh, it's done it's incredibly high. well. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, pretty pretty hard not to make money on Facebook over the past like five years or so. It's done extremely well. Man, yeah, it it has. 
And it's also, it's one of, you know, some some stocks have just been on a tear and just haven't stopped. But Facebook has actually provided some buying opportunities over the past five years. There's There's been some events where the stock has gone down by, you know, 20 or 30%. Yeah. Um, which which has actually enabled you to get in. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, whereas, yes, other stocks, it's just like, please, I want that to happen, but it just has not happened for like the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the truth of the matter is that Facebook has made mistakes and that has created opportunities to invest. I mean, the last mm. time was the big one was 2018 when the Cambridge Analytica thing happened and um, I don't, there was hundreds of millions of um, of of people's data, hundreds of millions of people's data was was leaked. Um, mm. You know, there was huge problems going on with Facebook and they were getting sued. They took a $5 billion or a $10 billion fine or something insane. Um, so, the, the truth of the matter is you, th- these great businesses, if they don't have something like that happen, you can't invest in them at a price where you're really confident. You can, of course, speculate. And I mean, if you had bought Facebook at any price over the past five years, you have done Congratulations. Very well. You've done extremely <laughs> well. Um, but uh, had they not lived up to their expectations, that would have been a different story. It's just that yeah, exactly. it's, uh, yeah, the fact that the business has done extremely well has meant that you could have paid pretty much any price for it. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, very interesting. Um, just a quick story, old give you a, an update on uh, Facebook and their lawsuits probably in another six months. Uh, yeah, I'm not expecting we'll any back. news anytime soon on that. So, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll mm. see in, uh, in a few months' time. I do find it pretty funny that it was just thrown, like the FTC, just, it was just immediately thrown out. You would have thought they'd maybe put in a couple of numbers in there. <laughs> it just seems strange to me. Like, obviously, I don't have any, con- I don't understand how this legal system works. I don't live in the in the US or anything. But mm. it just seems strange that they, they would not even, they wouldn't even put enough data in there for it to be considered case worthy they just get it chucked out straight away but i'm sure they'll be back <laughs> facebook it's always the, the big players they always have a target on their back don't they i like what mm. you were saying the like the point that you brought up last time we were talking about this is that even if you're trying to argue that it's anti-competitive i mean back facebook back then would have been a bit big company with a lot of users but i mean instagram and and whatsapp would have had next to no users and you know you just argue that the only reason that instagram and whatsapp are what they are today is because of facebook i mean yeah back in the day i guess whatsapp was a was a good idea and instagram was a good idea and because they were great ideas then facebook said you know what we'll take those ideas and and we'll build them thank you very much yeah i mean the whatsapp acquisition looks worse in my opinion than the Instagram one. Instagram was nothing when they bought it. 2012, mm. Insta- who was using Instagram in 2012? I, I guarantee, yeah. I mean, I, I would be very surprised if anyone listening right now was using Instagram in 2012. That company was so small. There was so much competition. WhatsApp is a little bit different. WhatsApp was already a massive company, especially overseas. Um, so, that looks a little bit different, but um, yeah, I mean- I think you can make uh, you can make compelling arguments on on both sides. I mean, Facebook yeah. used to own they owned an app that basically allowed you to track the battery usage of the apps on your phone um, before because oh. you, you know how now your phone just kind of tells you this. It's it in the it. settings. Before that, you used to have to download an app. Facebook actually bought one of those apps, and the reason why they did it was because they wanted to see which apps were growing in popularity so that they could make acquisitions, and they used oh. that to acquire WhatsApp. And that is one of the key points that a lot of people are pointing to to say that is anti-competitive, that they deceived people using one app to collect data and make an acquisition in in another industry. So, um, that's, you know, that That makes sense. That's kind of fishy for me, I I think, um, particularly when a lot of people probably didn't know that's how their data was being used when they're just trying to track battery life, for example. but uh, yeah, the Instagram one is, um, is, is ridiculous. Just because Instagram is worth so much today, um, it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, yeah, well, they, they bought it out. Well, we didn't know it was going to be massive. And a lot of what mm. Instagram is today is based on investment that Facebook made after they bought it. So True. Good point. Yeah. Oh, we will, uh, true young investors style, we'll have to wait and <laughs> we see. We will have to wait happens. and see. <laughs> We haven't said that in a while, I feel. 
maybe I just haven't noticed don't, it. In a don't while. be ridiculous. I say it like four times every episode. So. Okay, <laughs> maybe uh, it must be. Just, I just haven't been noticing when we said it. Then. <laughs> um, all right, shall we move on? Yes. Where do, where do you want to um, go? I got this interesting uh, story. Nissan is committing to building a gigafactory. Wow, which is interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, and they they even said Gigafactory. So <laughs> they're taking they're taking Tesla's word as well. Um, so it says here, Nissan on Thursday announced plans to build a 1.38 billion dollar Gigafactory in Sunderland, UK, in a major boost to the country's electric vehicle plans. Mm. The Japanese automaker said it was launching the project, dubbed Nissan EV360, along with Envision AES. A battery technology company and Sunderland City Council. Nissan, which has been manufacturing in Sunderland for 35 years, said 1,650 new jobs would be created at the hub, 900 at Nissan and 750 at Envision AESC. Uh, speaking to CNBC's Squawkbox Europe on Thursday, Nissan's chief operating officer, uh, Ashwani Gupta, said the move demonstrated our roadmap to carbon neutrality. Um, so I find that really interesting, um, and I, I'll kind of go on a bit of a bit of a rant as to why I actually find this more interesting than than everything else that's been announced or has been going on in the EV space. Um, because what this indicates to me, and obviously it's a long way to go, this is just like an announcement. But what it indicates to me is that we're actually seeing another automaker invest in the infrastructure, the new infrastructure that's needed to manufacture EVs at scale. Um, and I, f- for example, like we've, we've seen a lot of EVs come out recently from various manufacturers, but they're kind of hodgepodge just put together. Their sales aren't very high. They don't really focus on them. It's kind of just like, yeah, we'll just do this one thing and we'll put it out in the newspapers and people will be happy because we're making an EV. But they're not really they're not really manufacturing EVs at scale like what Tesla's trying to achieve. Um, and, and the problem the reason why is that the pro- problem that traditional car companies are facing is that all of their factories are set up and optimized to build ICE cars, internal combustion engine vehicles. Whereas Tesla obviously has never had those factories. So from day one, they were able to engineer, they were able to build their own factories specifically optimized to build electric vehicles. Mm. <clears throat> and a lot of people say, um, you know, competition is coming. Because all the you know all the current car manufacturers building ICE cars, all they have to do is retool their current factories and start building EVs instead. But it actually isn't that simple because it's kind of like saying we're going to retool you know a toy factory to instead make cake mix or something like that. Like they're two completely different products. They look the same. Like EVs and ICE cars, they they tend to look like cars, but once you pull away the skin, they're actually completely different products that run completely differently to each other. Mm. Um, so, the problem that the ice manufacturers have been facing is that simply retooling their old factories just won't be enough to be able to compete with Tesla because Tesla are just extremely efficient and so well optimized because they planned the gigafactories. They built them from the ground up specifically to build this one product. And that was the plan from the beginning. So, mm. that's why- this this is this story in particular is actually interesting me more than you know oh the new Mark E's come out or the you know the Audi e-tron or whatever it's because Nissan has actually said okay they've put their hand up and said we're going to build our own tailored EV battery factory whatever it ends up being because to me that indicates that they're actually genuinely serious about manufacturing EVs in high quantities not just putting a a new model out there just to catch some press and say, look, we're making a Volkswagen Golf and it's all electric. No, they're actually setting up the infrastructure that will be able to manufacture EVs at a high scale. Yeah. It, anyway, it rant over. That's that's why I'm actually excited about this, I suppose. And I hope that this actually happens and it does go through. Yeah. I mean, it's to me, it's extremely interesting to see changes like this in, in um, certain industries because- um, obviously bigger businesses that are more established, they have more access to more capital. So a lot of the time it's easier for them to, to, to maintain their competitive position, for example. But if there is a big change, um, especially in relation to businesses that rely on a lot of physical assets, uh, a business like Tesla that doesn't have all of these ice factories, these uh, internal combustion engine factories, they don't, uh, you know, they're, they're a lot more nimble. 
to changes at the moment. And then mm. they can kind of just build directly into and just start from scratch and build um, and, and, you know, the, the manufacturing requirements to build electric cars. Whereas it's a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive for legacy automakers to, to, to make that transition um, to either downsize some of their factories and maybe forego some revenue in internal com combustion engine cars and then spend a ton of money converting them or to build new factories. And then they might have these old factories that are, that are you know, going down in, in use um, or efficiency. Mm. So um, it is interesting, but I, I definitely agree with you that um, this is kind of one of the moves that shows they're quite serious about it because of course, you're going to need to make a lot of batteries if you're selling electric vehicles at, at um, scale. So, um, yeah, it's a Absolutely. interesting move to see Nissan make. Yeah. I hope that this triggers, you know, Volkswagen, Ford, all these, to actually say, yes, we are going to build a factory. It's not. I'm sick and tired of seeing other car manufacturers saying, we're going to release a new EV model. And then it sells like 6,000 units a quarter or something, <laughs> just, just something stupid. I'd much rather them come out and say, we're going to build a massive factory. And yes, it might take us five years to build this factory or however long it takes. But once it's up, we're not going to be selling 6,000 cars a quarter. We're going to be selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars um, of, of electric vehicles per quarter. So, anyway, uh, rant over. <laughs> yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because, of course, you had, you know, you had something like the Apple's iPhone and how dominant that was in the first few years. And then, you know, obviously many other businesses started making smartphones or, or you know, caught up to Apple in that way. And Apple's market share in the iPhone market is, or in the smartphone market, I should say, isn't, you know, crazy it's not 80 percent or something i think it's you know yeah. 20 or 30 percent or something like that but it's enough for them to be what the biggest Absolutely. company in the world and to capture enough people into that ecosystem so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out right now tesla just absolutely dominates the um ev oh, market yeah. but as the ev market becomes the dominant way that people um enter the auto market uh what will their what will their market share look like and and what does it need to look like in order for them to meet some of the expectations investors have right now for considering the price that it's at so those are all of That's the question. things that'll be uh, very interesting to see but yeah yeah very interesting all right, that's uh, that's my little rant. That's my little rant and rave for today. <laughs> um, should we talk about Ray Dalio for a little bit? Yeah. So uh, yeah, Ray Dalio has been uh, active again. He seems to, and I, I guess this is the case with um, anyone who's kind of um, in his kind of position. They they kind of do like media events all in you know, all in a in a in a bulk, <laughs> right? They they spend like two weeks doing a number of interviews or or or, or posts on their on their channel, and then they kind of go dark for. <laughs> for six months but yeah um, yeah Ray Dalio has kind of been back at it and uh, one of the things he did recently was he posted a video on his YouTube channel um, so uh, if you're not subscribed to Ray Dalio go check him out <laughs> he doesn't post very yeah, often absolutely. but uh, he, he posts of course really really good content but this video was in regards to um, whether he thinks that the stock market is in a bubble um, which is a question that apparently he was asked recently to talk about which kind of makes sense because you had Michael Burry talking about bubbles and uh, you know even we go back to like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger at the beginning of the year at the annual meeting mm. talking about um, whether the market was experiencing significant amounts of speculation. But Ray Dalio shared his opinion um, in the video and he his approach to it and the video that he made is really based on an article he wrote, I think, four or five months ago. So, if you had read his article on LinkedIn, then this video was pretty much just the same thing reiterated but summarized <laughs> yeah exactly um but his approach is essentially to take these what he calls six measures of of um unsustainable pricing and he kind of uses these as as bubble measures um to assess each company within say the s&p 500 or the u.s market more broadly um and to to see whether the market is in a bubble the six measures are, the first is price compared to traditional measures. So, um, you know, using a, a traditional discounted cash flow and, and seeing how prices compare there. The second is prices are discounting unsustainable conditions. So, um, whether the prices of stocks are reflecting 
growth that is just not going to happen, growth that is ridiculous. So, you know, whenever you're assessing a company and they have to grow at 50% per year for, for you know, 10, 20 years or something, <laughs> or maybe 30 years just to make you a decent return, then that's that's discounting Uh-oh. unsustainable conditions that are probably not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Tesla. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> The, uh, oh, the third one is uh, new buyers have uh, entered the market. So, if there's a lot of beginners, uh, inexperienced investors starting to enter the markets for the first time. Uh, the fourth is broad bullish sentiment. So, the way he described this was when you start to hear, you know, um, you know, you're at your cocktail party and and people are talking about how good the stock market is or your your Uber <laughs> drivers starting to give you tips in that sort of, well, you know, when, when people <laughs> who have generally speaking are not participating in the market are, are you know, thinking that it's super easy to make money. Yeah. The fifth one is purchases are being financed by high leverage. So, this relates to people investing in the markets, but also just businesses in general, whether businesses are starting to use huge amounts of debt to, um, to, to make investments and make purchases. And then the last one is uh, buyers or businesses that have made extended forward purchases. So, um, Typically, so basically what that means is when businesses start to basically stock up on inventory and other things because they expect prices to rise. Um, And when Mm. that happens, because there's a lot of buying of those um, products or inventory, it creates uh, a flow on effect of inflation in them and then more people want to buy them because they're going up in price. So. Mm. Those are the six measures and he kind of goes through each of them in the video and uh, and uh, explains his thoughts on them. Um, I, I guess one key point is that he says that it's not as if all of these measures need to be met for there to be a bubble. It's just that these are signs of a bubble. So, um, in the dot-com bubble, for example, all of these metrics were showing that it was a bubble just for internet companies. So, not the market broadly, but if you looked at internet companies specifically, then all of these were lighting up. But in 2007, only two of the measures were showing a bubble and the market still collapsed massively. So, it's not as if all of them have to be lighting up. But in terms of what Dalio sees today broadly, so for the whole US market, he actually only sees two of these that are not even showing that they're at a bubble level, but uh, what he calls frothy. So, the level before <laughs> um, bubble. I thought frothy was an Australian um, like term. Clearly not. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was misinformed. I thought we had that one. So, I'm wrong. Um, frothy yeah. is, a, is a worldwide concept apparently. <laughs> <laughs> looking frothy (laughs) (laughs) Um, mate that is frothy (laughs) uh, it's a great term great way to describe the the markets right now Um, but those two measures (laughs) that he described as frothy are that new buyers have entered the market so he thinks a lot of new buyers have entered the market and that there is a significant amount of broad bullish sentiment Um, and I think that's that's quite obvious uh, I think that's uh, very fair yeah I don't think you need to look too much at any data to to reach that conclusion Um, we just spoke about Robinhood and uh, and uh, you know that's just one app of of many that new investors are mm. using to access the markets these days. Yeah, and just uh, just on that, um, I, I looked up the stats oh, for the video that I made, but now they're escaping me. It's something like the user growth on Robinhood last year, like twelve months ago, they had about seven million uh, users, and now mm. they have eighteen million users. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so <laughs> last year or so, when you're talking about new buyers entering the market, who yeah. Um, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, he then goes on to describe, so what he does is he applies these measures to every stock in the US market and then kind of sees if there's pockets of the market that are showing that they're more bubbly than others. And what he found, which should be no surprise to anybody, is that if you look at emerging tech, so new tech companies that are not profitable, that have IPO'd in the last few years, um, they are in very much in bubble territory. So, in terms of prices compared to traditional measures, he sees it as frothy, prices discounting unsustainable conditions, frothy, new buyers enter the market, he thinks it's a bubble, broad bullish sentiment, he thinks it's a bubble, purchases being financed by high leverage, he thinks it's a bubble, and uh, making extended forward purchases, um, he thinks is somewhat frothy. So, that's kind of the smallest one there. But conditions in Ray Dalio's opinion for the emerging tech businesses are far more looking like a bubble Mm. than the broader market, generally speaking. Um, So, 
that I think that's not really any surprise <laughs> to, to anyone, considering yeah. if you look at the valuation of any new businesses, um, they're just insanely high. And and maybe if you've entered the market in the last year or so, or even the last few years, and and uh, you haven't looked kind of you haven't spent time looking at what valuations were like 50 years ago, for example, then maybe you think this is normal, but it's not. It's not normal what we're seeing. It's not normal for a stock to have 100 PE. I've seen a lot of YouTube videos recently where people are describing a a tech company and they're like, well, it has a forward PE of 60, which isn't too bad. And I'm just thinking, what are you talking about? You are an idiot. (laughs) Did you say 60 or six? Because, yeah. because six seems pretty reasonable, but, but 60 yeah. doesn't. The the example I always remember is when you read The Intelligent Investor, uh, Benjamin Graham is talking, he, he has this, he has this um, uh, some like paragraph in there where he's talking about uh, so, something, 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 or if, you know, if stocks should have uh, incredibly high forward uh, price to earnings ratios of say 15 or 20. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, low what? <laughs> that would be considered uh, right now very low. <laughs> yeah. It's just like you really want to avoid, you know, if 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 the PE is like 15 or 20, you want to be very cautious of investing in these companies. <laughs> yeah. He, he says something funny like you wouldn't invest in a company with a PE over 20 or something like maybe it's 25, but it's, yeah. it's so yeah. low and it's like you wouldn't even dare consider a company with a BE that high. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's a crazy time where it's normal to see a company have a PE over 50. Um, mm. But I mean, I can't remember who was talking about this, but um, actually it was Ray Dalio in this video. Um, he he was saying that, you know, as crazy as it is for companies to have a PE of, of 50, Think of it this way. The US Treasury yield right now is at, I think, 1.3%. So, that mm. US Treasury yield right now has a PE of of like 80 or 90, right? Like, so, yeah, so yeah. if you think of it that way, that the alternative, the risk-free alternative is the PE of 90, then, and you assume the earnings are the same for that versus a business, then, you know, maybe a PE of 40 for the market, I think he says even 50, you know, is not crazy compared to that. Now, of course, if the interest rates on those um, on those uh, bonds go up, then we should expect the PE ratios of stocks to come down dramatically, which would be terrible for stocks. And that's probably <laughs> something we'll see at some point over the uh-huh. long term. But um, yeah, it's it's a it is an interesting environment where we have incredibly low rate uh, yields on everything. Everything has just been bid up to the moon. Um, yep. So that's kind of the kind of sucks. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, it doesn't mean you can't find opportunities. There's always opportunities. Like, I mean, as I mentioned with, say, Facebook in 2018, I mean, regardless of what the market was doing, they were facing some serious problems and the stock got smashed for it. So, while the market was hot, Facebook was not. <laughs> um, yeah. So, there's always opportunities if you if you have a keen eye. But yeah, broadly speaking, it's very difficult to, to invest in anything unless you're willing to just speculate which is uh, probably not a good strategy. Wouldn't be one that I endorse. Probably so. not. Yep. Probably a pretty good way to lose money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's all I had from that. I recommend you go check it out. And Ray Dalio has put out some interviews um, on Bridgewater Associates, which is uh, his other channel um, for his uh, investment oh, firm. Okay. So there's some new ones that I haven't looked into yet myself, but um, there's a lot of content coming out with uh, Ray Dalio at the moment. So if you're a Ray Dalio fan, uh, go check out... Uh, Go check out some of his uh, more recent interviews and things he's posting online. Uh, yeah, I have to check that. There's one from yesterday that we need to have a look at. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked um, at it yet. I'll probably look at we'll it have to, later today. Yeah, yeah, we'll have a watch later today. Sounds good. All right. Well, we do have one more story about Donald Trump, but I think we might save that for potentially next week because we are running low on time a little bit. Should we do uh, one or two Q&A questions and, and then scoot out of here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can, yeah, I can read one to you. Uh, any, sure. any preference? Um, let's do this one here. Okay. Um, hey guys, and thank you for the podcast. Well, thank you for tuning in every single week. Um, yeah. I have a question for you regarding investing by picking individual stocks. Can you tell me what gives you confidence that you are going to outperform the market and index tracking funds by picking individual stocks uh, when uh, so many other much smarter people than we are uh, have failed to outperform the market uh, or made it by mm-hmm. a very small margin? 
Yeah. This is a really good question. Yeah. Um, because you're right. Probably the statistics should tell you that um, you shouldn't be very confident that you can outperform the market. If we were talking to someone like Jack Bogle, if he was alive right now, he'll say, <laughs> you idiot, if you think you can outperform the market, good luck. And you can look at some of the charts, and I made a video about this recently, about how you know active funds, I think it's like 75% of active funds in the United States underperform the S&P 500. Here in Australia, I think about 80% of active funds underperform the ASX 200. Um, and of course, you can just buy index funds that track these indices and then you're you're good. I mean, you'll get the return of the index. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely like it is, it is difficult to outperform the market. And I think the main thing it comes down to is temperament. But I also think that even though there are a lot of funds out there that, you know, look fancy and, you know, they can't outperform the market. I think it's important to remember that as a small investor, an individual investor just like me or you, uh, we actually have a much higher probability of being able to consistently outperform the market than the big money managers of the world do. Um, And that's quite simply because the big money managers, the ones that you see on CNBC or whatever um, that are managing other people's money, they're playing a very, very different game to what we're playing uh, because they're they're not really investing their own money. Well, they probably are, but they're they're mainly investing the money uh, that belongs to their clients. Um, And pretty much because they're investing money that belongs to their clients and they're all doing that, they essentially need to be consistently making returns. Otherwise, the clients are going to go, you know what, this guy down the road is doing a far better job than you are, so I'm just going to go with him. Um, So, what that means is it means that these guys are pretty much constantly invested. I heard of one, I was talking to someone uh, privately saying that the fund that he used to work for has like, you can only hold a maximum of 10% cash or something like that, mm. um, which is just like crazy. It's like, I, I wouldn't want to have that sort of rule. Imagine having to have, imagine having that rule imposed on you that at all times you, you maximum amount is 10% cash. Um, yeah. It's just like, man, that that, that would be crazy. I, I, you know, there's some times where I might be 20%. There's some times where I might be 5%, but, you know, anyway. Um, so, so they, they're trapped into this always being invested. They're trapped into this always producing returns, trapped into this always need to perform for my clients. They're trapped into this short-term mindset um, because they can't just be like, you know what, the stock market is real hot. I'm just going to take all of it out you know, or, or a lot of it out. And then we're going to, or, you know, not even thinking like that, but thinking like, you know, there's no good opportunity. So, I'm not going to put any money in right now. Mm. They can't do that. They just have to be in there. So, uh, whereas we, we can just wait, we can just like, there's no pressure on us. Um, you know, Hamish isn't going to come around to my place next week and say, Hey, Brandon, <laughs> have you made 5% this week? And, you know, if if you haven't, then, you know, you're in trouble. Um, so, we, we can just wait. We can sit and wait for great opportunities. And that gives us a really, really big advantage um, mm. that's very underappreciated, I feel. People really don't appreciate that. And it's probably because they don't understand the game that the funds are playing. So, they see this <coughs> underperformance by all these funds and they're like, oh, do I, can I beat the market if these guys can't? But you absolutely can. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I want to draw on an, on an example that Peter Lynch talks about. And I think this demonstrates clearly why the money management industry is such a different investing game to the the average investor. So, Peter Lynch, I'm sure a lot of people know who he, who he is. He managed the Magellan Fund for 13 years in the 70s and 80s, and he generated an average annual return of 29% in the portfolio. And Insane. he would spend a lot of time in the portfolio in cash. He would pull money out. He would make investments in businesses that had stock prices going down. And as a result, that's his average annual return, but it was a lot more lumpy over time, right? You have to have periods if you're going to make a return like that over long over the long term where you're investing in companies that stock prices are going down and also holding on to cash. The average investor who invested while Peter Lynch was managing that fund, the average investor lost money and the average annual return of the portfolio wow. was 29%. And what that shows you is how people behave when they're giving money to a money manager. And it is no surprise that most money managers, rather than doing what Peter Lynch did, which was 
I don't care. I'm going to manage this portfolio to the best of my ability. Most money managers, they listen to their clients, which is that they need to see consistent returns every single quarter. And by doing that, you forego massive long-term returns. So, um, that's the reality. And I think the other thing that that shows is that how much temperament it comes into investing as well. Absolutely. That people want returns in the short term. If Peter Lynch's portfolio was 50% cash, a lot of people would have been screaming, well, I don't pay you just to hold cash. I could do that myself. So they pull their money out. Um, so I think that's a good example of the pressures that fund managers are under to perform consistently. And uh, unless you're someone like Peter Lynch who had a massive track record, you probably can't behave that way as a, as a fund manager or you'll lose your job. So um, yeah. yeah, just an interesting example. Yeah. Uh, no, that is a very good example. And uh, I think it highlights those major points. That's so interesting. What'd you say? Half the clients lost the average, money. The average client lost money. Wow. That is just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> that is ridiculous. which is insane because bonkers yeah and uh, yeah I mean it's zero it's no surprise that funds um, would rather diversify massively um, and always be invested in the markets and try and make small percentage points every single quarter because then they keep their clients' money and keep collecting those fees. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Juicy, juicy fees. <laughs> should we? Uh, anyway. Yeah. Should we wrap it up there for today? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in as always. And uh, uh, I forgot to mention earlier, but if you do have any other questions or topics that you want us to cover in future episodes, then feel free to head over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the Young Investors Podcast. Just click on the latest episode, go down to to the comment section and leave your questions and topics down there. Um, Thanks, ShareSite, as always, for sponsoring. If you want to get four months off a yearly subscription or try it out for free, then head over to ShareSite.com forward slash Young investors. Thanks, Brandon, for joining me as always. All good. And we'll see you guys next week. See you later, guys. All right. Catch you later, guys. 